0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Well, when I sat down to write the book, I started by thinking about it. Having read a lot of books about Watergate, I thought it was going to be really necessary to have it inside account, as opposed to people from the outside speculating about what happened.
0: This is Andrew Weissman, a former top-level prosecutor for the Special Counsel's Office. His book is Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. It marks the first time anyone on Robert Mueller's team has spoken in detail about the mechanics of the investigation.
1: But as I wrote it, as much as I do talk about the challenges coming from the White House and from Attorney General Barr and the challenge of dealing with a target who has the power to fire us and had the power to pardon or dangle pardons. Um, I realized that I really wanted to be completely candid and forthright about how we met those challenges and realized I was going to have to write a harder book that looked at what we did well and what we didn't do as well.
0: Mueller divided his investigators into three groups, Team M, focused on Paul Manafort, Team R for Russia, and Team 600, which was looking into the possible obstruction of justice by the president. In his book, Weissman writes about the decisions Mueller made to try and play by the rules, while Trump clearly was not. Weissman is particularly critical of Mueller's decision not to subpoena Trump. In the end, Weissman says... Trump used the system against itself to block a full accounting. Hello and welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica that digs deep into the business of Trump. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Today on the show, my co-host Ilya Meritz and I speak with Andrew Weissman about the places where Mueller's investigation fell short of its mission— to get a complete picture of President Trump and his relationship with Russia.
2: Um, Yeah, so Andrew Weissman, you are choosing in this book to say a lot of things that can't be unsaid. You're pretty critical of some of the people you worked with, including Robert Mueller, and it just seems like this is somebody who made a decision to speak freely, and I'm wondering what that feels like.
1: There aren't many advantages in aging, But one of the things that's nice about being 62 years old is you sort of make decisions in your life about what's important. One thing I would say is the book is very admiring of lots and lots of people in terms of the situation they were in and work that they did. And I understand that the press is gonna cover things where I think we could have done better. But I, I do think it's important to remember all of the positive work that was done within the the investigation.
0: So, Andrew, I don't know if you know the story of how Ilya and I started investigating Trump.
1: WNYC's Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Maritz report.
0: It was after the election, and we were like, let's figure out everybody who lives in Trump Tower. (laughs) For three decades, Trump... So we started at the 29th floor, and we had this big Google data sheet, and we were putting in... Like everything we could figure out about who all of the limited liability companies were actually, and we got to apartment forty three G, forty three G in Trump Tower, which, as you know, was owned by John Hanna LLC. John Hanna LLC is registered. And that rings um, a bell,
1: Andrea.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> Manafort's middle name is John. Is Hanna. The two names are combined into a shell company name. And then we were sitting in front of Ilya's computer, and we were like, let's look at all his other apartments on Acres, which is the New York City real estate disclosure portal, and we see that he's done this same pattern in Brooklyn and in Soho.
2: Transfers the deed into his own name for zero dollars.
0: So that's how we got interested in Manafort and how we started investigating Manafort. But what made you realize from the get-go, I mean, you were the head of Team M, Team Manafort, what made you realize from the get-go that understanding what Manafort did would be
1: central to this whole thing? One of the key possibilities if you're looking for connectivity to the Trump campaign, not knowing if it's there or not, but if you're looking for that, that Manafort would be a prime suspect. Um, and that was not so much because of his financial deeds. In other words, the, all the things that we looked at and made you know criminal cases. It had to do with his work in Ukraine for a pro-Russian President.
0: So Weissman's TMAM starts investigating Manafort in June 2017, and just four months later hands up an indictment of Manafort and his deputy Rick Gates for working secretly as lobbyists for the pro-Russian strongman president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, for years, and then routing the tens of millions of dollars they made through accounts in Cyprus to real estate in New York and to other big-ticket purchases to avoid paying taxes. The theory of the investigation was this. Manafort's and Gates' illicit financial deals could lead to Russia.
2: Months later, there are more indictments for tax and bank fraud. And then the Mueller team gets a break. Manafort's deputy, Rick Gates, flips. He starts cooperating with prosecutors. And he fills out the details of a key meeting between himself, Manafort, And a person we now know to be a Russian military officer, Konstantin Kalimnik, or KK, as Manafort and Gates called him. KK had worked with Manafort and Gates in Ukraine. This meeting is in New York on August 2nd, 2016, just after the Democratic and Republican conventions have concluded.
0: The August 2nd meeting, which is this meeting in the Grand Havana Room, which is a cigar bar, steak and martinis place at the top of... 666 Fifth Avenue, which no scriptwriter would accept this because it's so obvious, but it's Jared Kushner's <laughs> family-owned skyscraper. And Konstantin Kalimnik, who you guys describe as an Russian asset and the bipartisan Senate committee describes as a Russian military officer, has to come from Moscow.
1: Um, when we learned of that meeting and read the emails setting it up, uh, our antenna were up. It was incredibly suspicious. I mean, this was happening at a time that usually the campaign manager has a lot of other things to do, and yet here's this in-person meeting, understanding that Constantine Kalimnik and Paul Manafort are communicating on email and other ways. So what you want to know is what happened? Why is this meeting happening at this time? Why does this have to be in person? And what was the discussion? So step one was when Rick Gates cooperates, he tells us about the part of the meeting that he was at. He was late to the meeting, and we corroborated that through emails and texts that showed that he was running late. So we don't know what happened at the part of the meeting that he was not there for. But we do have from him that he had been passing on at Paul Manafort's direction internal campaign polling data during the campaign to Konstantin Kalemnik. He also describes that when he was at the meeting, there was a discussion of so-called battleground states, four states, and one of which, you know, caught my attention because it was Wisconsin, which I don't think at the time people thought of as a battleground state.
0: The list of battleground states was a tell. Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. The latter three... Trump won by the narrowest of margins, which raises the question, what did Russia do with the data? Did they use it to target their disinformation
1: efforts? And the next thing we tried to do is figure out, OK, well, what else happened? This, that doesn't really seem to explain why you would fly all the way from Moscow to have that conversation. Um, it, it didn't seem like that could be the whole story.
0: Late in its investigation of this meeting, Team M got a break.
1: We got a series of very interesting communications between Paul Manafort and a pollster named Tony Fabrizio, who he used to work with very closely on Ukraine work. And there were a number of discussions between Tony Fabrizio and Constantine uh, Kalimnik, and Paul Manafort about a proposal to split Ukraine in two. And okay, so
2: I want to jump in here because to me, this was one of the revelations of your book, is you're talking with Tony Fabrizio, and now we're talking about communications in 2018, correct? When Manafort is under indictment and facing trial.
1: Absolutely.
2: And he continues to talk with Konstantin Kalimnik, who... I think it, the shorthand for him now would be Russian spy uh, about doing political polling work in Ukraine. I mean, my head was exploding as I read this. To be clear, pollster Tony Fabrizio was not charged or implicated in wrongdoing.
1: Yeah, we then continued pursuing this. We found an email where Konstantin Kolemek talked about the splitting of Ukraine in two. And just so your listeners understand, Um, The proposal was to have Russia take over the eastern half of Ukraine. That's the profitable part. And think of this as Russia had taken over Crimea. And this was basically saying, how would the United States, and particularly Donald Trump, feel if we were to take over the eastern part of Ukraine? And the phrase in writing that was used is, we would need the Trump administration to be on board. We'd need a wink that this was okay. Okay.
0: In August of 2018, Manafort is convicted of eight felonies in Virginia. He has another trial coming up, on still more charges, in D.C. Looking at his situation, Manafort decides to avoid another trial and strike a cooperation agreement. To get an agreement, Manafort visits prosecutors in their offices. And the biggest thing Weissman wants to know from him is, what was up with that August 2nd meeting with Konstantin Kalimnik? Why were they discussing a carve-up of Ukraine?
1: Paul Manafort ultimately conceded that that topic came up at the August 2nd meeting. He initially denied it and then ultimately said, when he was shown these documents and communications, said, yes, that was the topic that was raised. There's a discussion of what it is that Russia wants But you don't have that kind of ask without that. It's a quid pro quo where we know the quid, but we don't know the quo. So you have Russia asking to take over half of a country. Um, In order to make that ask, these are transactional people. The thing that we don't know is what was Russia offering to get that wink? What was it that Konstantin Kalimnik was coming to say? And we don't know whether it was... You know, we're helping you in the election. Obviously, that's one theory. We don't know if it's personal to Paul Manafort. If you do this, we're going to pay you back money that, you know, oligarchs owe you. Or we're going to resolve the lawsuit between you and Oleg Deripaska. We don't know if it's a sort of a personal financial interest. We just don't know the answer to that.
2: The reason we don't know is that Manafort broke his promise to tell the truth after pleading guilty. The cooperation agreement fell apart. There were no more strands left to pull. During this time, Manafort continued to communicate with the White House.
0: We know from your report that Russia was uh, targeting both disinformation and the dissemination of the emails that were stolen and dumped. And we also know that Constantine Kalimnik had been given polling data about very sensitive states. So can you just walk through like what your theory was, what you were looking for, what you think the nature of that transaction that you were not able to prove might have
1: been? It's speculative. I mean, the the first thing you have is something that's highly, highly irregular, which is Internal campaign polling data is something that's supposed to stay internal, right? I mean, if you know anybody who works on a campaign, that's not something that they want to have disseminated outside of the campaign. So you have this evidence that Paul Manafort is sending internal Trump campaign polling data to somebody who is... A Russian who the Senate Intel Committee is, you know, colloquially is described as a Russian spy. Um, that's not the term they use, but I'm just going to use that for purposes of, the, of this. And so the question is, why? And the most benign theory would be that he was backdooring the Trump campaign by, without authorization, sending this data to show. Ukraine and Russian oligarchs repeatedly, you know, look at how Trump is doing and I'm in a position in power and this would be useful in terms of business development going forward. That's a theory. There's a lot of questions about that theory because why would you need to send polling repeatedly why wouldn't you just send the most favorable polls you know the most nefarious theory would be that Paul Manafort was doing this and that people in the Trump campaign were aware of it and i should say there's no evidence at all that we uncovered that anyone above or to the side of Paul Manafort was aware of this we just we just never uncovered it that at all but you know the most nefarious theory um, would be that people were aware of it and that it could be operationalized by people in Russia who were trying to assist the uh, campaign. Because obviously we do have that piece of it. We know that Russia was trying to assist the Trump campaign. You know, one possibility that sort of mixes the two is that this wasn't an either or. You could have a motive that will help Paul Manafort financially, but that it also, to the extent that Russia was going to operationalize it, so be it.
0: The hope of the Mueller investigation was that the full truth would be revealed. That did not happen.
1: Sometimes you can pursue an investigation. We did pursue the Paul Manafort investigation, I think, assiduously. And sometimes you just you don't get to the end. And, you know, we ended up flipping Rick Gates and he cooperated and then Paul Manafort said he was gonna cooperate and didn't. And so at some point you run out of tools and you can just not have the answers even though you follow all of the steps. But what I try to lay out in the book is, at least my personal assessment is, you know, we could have done more.
2: We'll be right back.
0: We're back, speaking with top Mueller prosecutor Andrew Weissman about his book, Where Law Ends. Weissman speaks to us about the things he thinks they did well, including investigating and convicting Paul Manafort, and his deputy, Rick Gates, of financial crimes. But also he talks of the limits of his investigation.
2: You were working in the government for the government in this period when Donald Trump is in the White House and he's busting norms and really putting pressure on all different parts of the government in a lot of ways that we have never ever seen before but i think of all the departments and agencies where trump's impact has been felt my sense is that it may be the greatest in the justice department and and just there's a million examples but the one that really sticks in my mind is the fact that the justice department is now representing uh president trump in eugene carroll's defamation suit against him which i'm not a lawyer but that goes against sort of my entire sense of sort of how the Justice Department is supposed to work representing the president sort of in a in a entirely private matter that very much predates his presidency. You describe the Justice Department where you worked for many, many years as being staffed with lots of very principled, hard-driving men and women. And I just wonder how you make sense of what has happened there.
1: So in terms of like who I'm, I think, extremely critical of my book. It's, I mean, the Attorney General, that is Attorney General Barr, is somebody who I think has really upended the role and goals of the Justice Department. The Justice Department is supposed to be not taking actions based on whether um, somebody is a friend or foe of the White House, he is imposing a different standard for people who are aligned with the White House. And I'd say the Roger Stone sentencing submission and the Michael Flynn motion to dismiss are two really prime examples of that. Um, and I think for people who worked in the department for decades, that's a, it's really dispiriting. To relate it to Ukraine that we've been spending a lot of time talking about, President Yanukovych, when he came into power, endorsed a prosecution of his political opponent, Yulia Tymoshenko, And that was a huge deal in the United States where both Republicans and Democrats condemned that as a selective prosecution and using the rule of law to just go after a political opponent. That was one of the main things that Rick Gates and, and Paul Manafort were working on is trying to figure out ways to make that more palatable in the United States.
2: So I want to ask you about one of the areas where, in retrospect, you are very critical of your own investigation, and that has to do with the decision to only go so far in the investigation of Trump's own finances and and the finances of the Trump Organization. You described several inflection points where you could have taken a different path.
1: Um, In the June... July 2017 time period, when we issued a subpoena to Deutsche Bank to get financial records. And the White House got wind of that and wanted to know whether we were looking at the president's or the Trump organization's financial records. And as you recall publicly, it had been stated that was a red line and that was again repeated to us. And there, there was a difficult decision about What do you do? By the way, the facts were that the subpoena had to do with Paul Manafort's finances, as to which we did do a traditional follow-the-money investigation. And there, there's a tough decision, and it's useful, I think, for your listeners to think about what you would do at that point in the investigation. Do you risk going forward and doing a financial investigation of the president at that point with the idea that that might increase the risk that you're fired and... There may or may not be a blowback with respect to that decision, or do you go f- decide we're going to put that off for now and go forward with the work of Team M and Team R and Team Six Hundred? The special counsel went chose the latter. I actually agree with that at that point, and but I think you know reasonable minds could differ. My issue was that that decision, I think, should have been revisited once you had so much more accomplished by Team M and Team R in terms of having established what Russia was up to, having established that Rick Gates and Paul Manafort are guilty. At that point, it seemed to me that we needed to be more thorough, understanding it would be within the construct of what the deputy attorney general had um, tasked us with doing. In other words, it wasn't, it's not a free-for-all um, you had to keep it within the appointment order. But at, that's where I have my difference with the decision made by the special counsel.
2: Right. I mean, I, I think all of it matters because of this question of leverage and, um, and compromise and the fact that, the, that Donald Trump publicly said one thing about having no business in Russia. And yet during the campaign, he clearly was attempting to do business in Russia at a very high level. And so I wonder if you could sketch out for me what a a true investigation of the Trump business might have looked like. This is a hypothetical, it's not really covered in your book, but like, what would be the initial steps that you might take? What would be some of the things that you would do, some of the places that you might look?
1: So I think there are two buckets. One would be whether Russian money made its way into the campaign or a pack, That's sort of one piece. The second bucket is what I would call sort of the what we did with Paul Manafort. What you're looking to see is what is being told to banks, what is being told to the IRS, Uh, Because, you know, you have different incentives there. Um, With the IRS, your incentive is to lower your income and inflate your debts. And with banks to get loans, it's the reverse. You want to show that you have lots of income and very few debts. And then one of the reasons I think there's been so much attention from the Manhattan DA's office on the Mazar subpoena, which is the accounting records, is that that tends to be extremely useful information because you're getting an inside look at what people are telling their accountants. What are they reporting to their accountants about their assets and their income? In Paul Manafort's case, I described that when we got those records, it was a real aha moment. Because they had asked Paul Manafort direct questions about, for instance, do you have foreign bank accounts? And he personally responded, no.
0: You never got there with Trump. I mean, one of the things that was so very interesting to me about reading your book was that (laughs) I think at one point during the investigation, I used the words subpoena envy, because it seemed like our tools were so inadequate to throw ourselves against this incredibly complex maze of nesting limited liability companies and international finances with Trump we thought okay we may not get there as journalists we can sort of you know keep spotlighting this issue we've had this open investigation for the past almost 4 years into trump finances But we thought you were going to get there. And it really sort of did come like a bucket of cold water on the head just to realize how many lingering questions not only do we still have, but that were never addressed by the Mueller investigation.
1: So that's, you know, that was the hard part of when you, at the outset, when you said, what's it like writing this, is that I I wanted to write a sort of candid assessment of what I thought we did right, um, and there are many things, but also um, what I thought we could have done better. Just to give you one example, even if someone thought it was justified not to do a full financial investigation, um, and I explain why I disagreed with that, I also thought that it wasn't particularly well articulated in our report as to what we did. And, you know, we're public officials paid for by taxpayers, and I thought it should have been spelled out. Um, and that's one where Ilya had said, you know, you're particularly critical. And that, uh, there are areas where I'm not trying to be particularly critical. I'm trying to just point out things that we didn't do, but that's one area where I am particularly critical.
2: Um, I really enjoyed this book. Thank you so much for talking with us. I mean, I have, like, like 20 more questions, but we'll save that for the paperback of your book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Andrew Weissman is a former senior prosecutor for Robert Mueller. He now teaches at New York University Law School. His book is Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. This episode of Trump, Inc. was produced by Matt Collette with technical production by Jared Paul. Hannes Brown wrote our theme and additional music. Nick Varshaver was the editor. I'm Andrea Bernstein.
2: I'm Ilya Meritz. Thank you for listening.
1: I think that that had a, a big influence on sort of, you know, my trajectory.
2: You have a very well behaved dog that sat still for over an hour. Yes, I do. I do.